0: So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word.
1: But here's the point. One of the things I learned as I looked at that is that some years that tree produced more of those balls than they did in other years. That was the fruit of the tree, right? It's the seed being produced. It's the fruit that it produced. And some years it produced a tremendous amount of it. And some years I had hardly any raking at all. There were very little that, that it dropped in that particular year. And on the years when these, these, these balls weren't being readily produced, I noticed something interesting. The tree itself was still growing and expanding. In fact, in those years, I saw it expand even more. And then on the years when it dropped the balls, I didn't see as much growth on the tree. It was just producing all of this fruit. But in the years that it wasn't producing, I knew this. Eventually, it would come. And much to my dismay, it actually did. And that's what happens oftentimes in the lives of people. Fruit grows in cycles. There are cycles, but that doesn't mean growth is not taking place. You know, I see that when it comes to service. And I often talk to the folks here and those who've been with us a long time. They're watching now on live stream at the moment. You know, it feels weird to point at a camera, but I'm used to pointing at people. But, you know, the truth is I've often said about service, there's seasons in service where you're sitting and there's seasons when you go and serve. And, and when you think about it, a lot of the fruitfulness that we see is when you're out serving, right? We'd say that we see fruitful activity, but don't, I never underestimate the fruitfulness of just sitting. There's growth that's taking place that has nothing to do with the production of outward fruit, but it has all to do with the inside that's taking place. And so, but but that's harder to see, right? You could walk in the doors and see people sitting here. You don't see serving and think, well, what's wrong with them? Their Christian life is deficient. So I grew up in churches to some extent like that, where if you weren't constantly active, there was something wrong with you. Use it or lose it, you know, kind of thinking. And I just, the more I looked at the scriptures, the more I realized that wasn't true. The more I looked at the scriptures, the more I realized there were times when the disciples just sat at Jesus's feet And then there were times when he sent them out. But the fruitfulness was still happening. There was still growth taking place. You just couldn't always see it. And so realize that fruit grows in cycles. And fourth, bad fruit being produced has to be evaluated before judgments pass. Bad fruit being produced has to be evaluated before judgments pass. And what I mean by this is that sometimes bad fruit isn't the result of a rotten plant, but it's the result of wrong conditions. It's the result of wrong conditions. My mom loved, when she was alive and she lived with us, she loved growing tomatoes. I Even as a kid growing up, she loved growing. And I remember those big boy tomatoes she'd grow, right? And as she tended those stalks, sometimes even as she would try to tend them, she couldn't keep up with them enough, and the stalks would begin to drop down. She'd stake them, but they'd begin to drop down to the ground and begin to grow along the ground. And and then what would happen is either fruit wouldn't grow on those branches, or if it did, it would begin to rot, And you could look at that and say, well, there's something wrong with the plant. Look at this, fruit's rotting as soon as it's on there. But what what it was is the fruit wasn't rotting because the plant was bad. The fruit was rotting because the plant was hanging down to the ground and all the dirt was getting on it. It was being shielded from the sunlight. The sun wasn't hitting it the same way and it just tended to rot right away. So what was the solution? Invest time in properly caring for the tomato stalk, (laughs) right? Invest time in properly preparing and and Managing and caring for that, that tomato stalk. She'd stake it properly. She'd lift the leaves from the ground and she'd clean off the, the fruit. She'd give it the opportunity to get the right sunlight and then wait and see what got produced to determine whether or not the plant was bad. I think Jesus had this absolutely in mind in the passage in John 15 verses one and two. John 15, one and two. He says this. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, most traditionally look at this verse and they think what Jesus is saying here when he says taken away is he has the sense of it's being cut off. It's just bad. The Greek word, though, is actually better translated as lifted up, lifted up, rather than taken away or cut off, lifted up. Now why is that significant? Because lifted up means something completely different than being cut off in the sense of being taken away as as discarded or useless. I firmly believe that what Jesus is saying is exactly what I'm sharing with you in this illustration, that before final judgment on the life of the fruitless branch, or that branch that seems to be producing rotten fruit can be determined, it first has to be lifted up, it has to be cleaned off, it has to be staked properly, it has to be properly fertilized, and it needs to be exposed to the sun's light. Sun's light, right? To the sun's light. And if it's genuine well, then good fruit will eventually come. And if it's not, then time will reveal. I think that this is a proper rendering when you consider what Jesus says elsewhere about wheat and tares, right? Remember what he says about wheat and tares in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30? Matthew 13, verse 24, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way but when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop then the tares also appeared so the servants of the owner came and said to him sir do you not sow good seed in your field how then does it have tares he said to them an enemy has done this the servant said to him do you want us then to go and gather them up no words pull them out tear them out they're bad right let's get rid of them but he said no lest while you gather up the tares you also uproot the wheat with them Let both grow together until the harvest, and at that time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barns. Jesus' whole point in this is that if you start ripping out what you believe are tares, you may be pulling out genuine wheat by accident because you're not seeing yet. The growth isn't far enough along to know whether it's genuine or it's not, or whether the fruit is really not growing, or whether the fruit isn't really what it's supposed to be. You don't know. Give it time to grow. Give it time to grow, and it will be sorted out in its good timing. Don't be so quick to tear out things that look like unfruitful tears, because you don't know yet, and you might be mistaken. Give it time. It's all Jesus is saying. So you see, it's not that that fruit shouldn't be used to make proper judgments. It absolutely should, but it's how we pass those judgments. This is still connected to what Jesus has been talking about on judgments and how quickly we make them matters because fruit production is much more complex a matter than we human beings like to think it is. I see my brother or sister in Christ doing wrong things, and instead of stepping in to do what's needed to help them grow – I use what they're doing as the basis of spiritual judgment against them. And yet I don't apply that same standard to my own life, nor do I want people to apply that to me. And that is a problem. That is a problem. I see the fruitlessness of my brother or sister in Christ's life, and instead of stepping in to help cultivate the spiritual ground of their lives, I step in and pass self-righteous judgment upon them, and yet I don't apply that same standard to my own life, and that is a problem. So you see, it's not that fruit is not a correct measure. It must be, or Jesus wouldn't have even addressed it here. It absolutely is. But it needs to be evaluated correctly and in a right way, and it has to begin with us first. It has to begin with us first. And short of looking at the fruit of our own lives, we will always be harsh, and we will always be wrong in our judgments of the fruits in the lives of other people. And based on the context of this passage in its entirety, I honestly do think that Jesus has the other guy in mind as he's saying all of this to them. He's saying as it applies to, or rather, he's not talking as much about the other guy as he is to the lives of those who are listening to him. He's saying as it applies to the fruit of their own lives and the judgment that they're willing to apply to themselves before applying it to the other guy. That's why he says, but I say to you who hear. You see the Pharisees? The Pharisees did it in reverse. The Pharisees made judgments of other people the priority and nothing about themselves. Jesus is reversing. He says, let it begin with you first. Start here. Then you'll be in a better position to help your brother or sister. You'll be in a better position to witness me to that unsafe person. It's one of the reasons today. You know, do I think that we live in a sinful world? Yeah, you bet I do. Am I afraid to preach on sin? Absolutely not. I am not. I'm I'm not exclusionary because I believe in the grace of God. To believe the grace of God negates talking about sin. It doesn't. Both are equally important. But at the same time, I'm really less prone to quickly pass judgments on behaviors I see in people anymore. I can't say that was always the case in my life, but anymore, I'm not as concerned with that as I am with what's driving their sinful behavior, what's going on in them. Do they know the Lord? Are they connected to the Lord? Do they understand what cultivation can I do? How can I reach out to them and help them begin to grow so that we can find out whether they're weed or tear? so that we can begin to share Christ with them. And you know what? Whether it's an unsaved person or a saved person, the truth is the solution is exactly the same. For the unsaved person who's engaging in all sorts of sinful behaviors, the solution is not to say, stop engaging in those sinful behaviors. The solution is what? To lead them into a relationship with jesus christ so that he can begin to transform them from within and so that when we talk about sin they can connect with that they begin to understand why sin is a problem but if you start to talk about sin and the behaviors and what i mean by sin i'm not talking about the sin we're born with in this world i'm talking about sinful behaviors somebody's doing drugs somebody's doing something wrong we can talk to them about why practically that's not a good thing for them to do but if we begin making that the issue with them spiritually they're not going to connect why that's a spiritual issue. They need that connection with Jesus Christ, and I want to lead them to that connection with Jesus Christ. So now that we can sit down and have a conversation about what the scriptures are saying about sinful behaviors, what the solution is that Jesus brings to the solution to the sinful behaviors, that's important. But how about the brother or sister that's in sin? The solution is exactly the same. You know, we're really quick to pass judgment on other believers to say, well, I don't think they're saved. But may those words never come from our mouths. We're not in a position to do that, right? But what we can say is their behaviors sure are not indicative of a saved person. And because of that, what's the solution? Well, I'm going to treat them as I would the unbeliever. I'm now going to follow what Matthew 18 tells me to do when they're not receiving. I'm going to go and treat them now as an unbeliever, not pushing them away, but reaching out to them with the message of Jesus Christ to make sure that their foundation is secure, Because the solution is exactly the same. They may simply have disconnected themselves a little bit from the branch, and that's why all of the sinful behavior is flowing. Or maybe they were never connected to the branch, but it doesn't matter. The key is to get them back into connection or get them connected to the branch. So I want to share the message of Jesus with them. Will I talk to them about their sinful behaviors? Absolutely. It'll come into the conversation. It's just not the first priority. The first priority is let's talk about what the real root of the problem is. And the real root of the problem is your view or your connection to Jesus Christ. And so now we want to begin to do that. So Jesus is taking a different approach than the Pharisees who immediately were passing judgment on everybody. They were making themselves the standard and passing on everybody else. And Jesus has just reversed that and said, you know what, let it begin with you. Let it begin with a judgment of who you are, where you are, so that the judgments you would make of others would be appropriate, done with the right heart, done with the right motivation, and would be helpful and constructive to their lives, and not destructive and simply condemnational, which is what the Pharisees were all about, condemnation and judgment, right? And so Jesus is teaching his believers a different way, and he says, but I say to you, who hear? And I hope we're hearing this morning. But then he goes on in verse 46, and he says this, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say. Jesus now ends this dialogue with this really sobering statement where he simply asks why anyone would call him Lord and not be willing to do what it is he's telling them to do. His double use of the word Lord, Lord, is meant to give extra meaning to what he's saying. As the rabbis taught that the doubling of a name showed esteem or special affection, and so what Jesus is saying is that, look, if you hold me with this high esteem, if you hold me with affection as you say you do, then why wouldn't you obey me? That's what he's saying. Now, to appreciate fully what he's saying, we have to first understand what that title means and what it doesn't mean in the context of the culture of Jesus's day, in particular at this point in his ministry. The Greek word Jesus used here for Lord is the word kurios. And the Greek word kurios, in its present—I'm going to use a big word here—theological context, right? The way we tend to interpret it most commonly today is most often used to refer to a divine sovereign. So, in other words, when it's used in context of Jesus, Lord, the idea is that we're using it to ultimately say that we recognize that he's the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords and he's divinity and he holds authority over everyone and everything— But in the first century, that term had a whole lot of other applications as well. It could simply be used to mean, sir, a sign of respect. It could simply be used as an expression to say, master, which would be common for those who would follow a teacher. It it could be common to a slave to call their owner, master, or owner. You know, it could be used in that term of an owner. It could have been used as as the word for husband, in reference to a husband by a wife. So understanding the context Jesus is using here is important to understanding his overall point that he's trying to make. And based on the fact that this dialogue is taking place relatively early in Jesus' ministry, this is happening on the front end, it's safe to assume that he's most likely not using it in the most commonly understood context, but he's using it more in the one that would have been more common to them, which would have been a title of respect, a title of esteem that people were applying to him as their teacher and not as a title that indicated their recognition that he was the divine sovereign, the divine son of God. Not yet. Now, if that assumption, if that assumption for this passage is correct, then Jesus is simply applying this idea as he's issuing this challenge to those who are following him as their esteemed teacher which would include both believers and unbelievers alike. And what he'd be saying to them simply is this. Why do you apply this title of respect and affection to me as your teacher, and yet you're not doing what I as your teacher am asking of you? If you truly respect me, you would do what I say. You wouldn't just speak words of respect, but you would demonstrate your respect for me by doing what I've asked of you. You see, Jesus, I believe, is challenging the attitude of the people in the same way that Ezekiel, through the Lord, had challenged the attitude of people in his day as he ministered as a prophet. Here's what Ezekiel said, and listen how similar this is. It's a little bit more verbose and wordy, but it's listen to what he says. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 30. It's the Lord speaking to Ezekiel, telling him about the attitude of the people, but he says this. Verse 30 of Ezekiel 33, As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do, they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. You see, it's the same idea here. People are respecting him as a teacher. They say they respect him. They're coming. They're telling people, oh, you got to come and hear him. You got to come and hear, you know, Ezekiel talk. You got to come and hear him. You got to hear what he's saying. But the reality is, they're doing the same thing. They're not, they're hearing, but they're not obeying. They're not listening. This is a problem with people then and now. Many are drawn to those who share God's word with them and and they say good things about them and they praise them with their lips, but their actions do not align with the praise they give those who are ministering to them. They like the words being spoken, but they do not do them. Here's truth. Words that are not backed up by actions are meaningless. They're empty. And quite frankly, they're worthless. That's just the truth. And this is the truth, that Jesus is now challenging those who are following him. That's what he's saying to them. He's challenging them. Irrespective of whether or not they saw him as Lord in the fullest theological sense or simply in the sense that they see him as their esteemed teacher, if you truly see him as Lord, your actions will bear that out. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Now, In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27, why don't you flip over there real quick with me? Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Many people refer to this and say, well, this is the same thing. It's the same thing, it's just presented a little bit differently. Well, yes and no. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27, Jesus issues a very similar challenge using very similar words. But in that passage, it is very clear that he has his divine authority in mind. There's no question about it in this passage, and he's speaking to a specific crowd of people regarding their salvation status. Look at what he says beginning in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, unlike our passage here in Luke, In this passage, Jesus is specifically talking to those who know who he is. It's clear from the language. They know who he is, but they're not redeemed or at least not in a redeemed relationship with him. They know he is God and they even acknowledge him as such. But their actions, regardless of their words, reveal that they are not in a relationship with him personally. They're using his name for their own self-determined religious purposes but not out of the relationship they are personally in with him. When Jesus says in verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The word knew is the same Greek word used to describe the kind of intimate knowledge a husband has with his wife. It's not merely knowledge of someone in the sense of having heard of them or having studied them or studied under them, but it implies a close personal relationship with him that is not based on works, but on a submitted heart. But on a submitted heart. Look, it is the truth that there are people who are going to be very surprised to learn that even though they have said, Lord, Lord, and and done all sorts of good works in Jesus' name that he will one day say to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. Why won't he know them? Before you freak out and start going through the checklist of, Oh, is that gonna be me? You know? Whenever you bring this passage up, it's like sometimes, you know, after discussions with people afterwards, you find out it was sort of like Jesus at the table, you know, that night he says, One of you is gonna betray me, and everybody's sort of like, Is it me? Is it me? Listen, before you jump to conclusions, you need to think about why it is that he won't know them. And here it is, because despite all of their words, they really never knew him. Their relationship with him was a relationship based on what? A relationship based on works that they were doing, not not one of true faith and dependence upon him. They've wrongly concluded that their spirituality was determined by what they did in this life rather than in the one in whom they entrusted their lives. The reality is that they trusted in themselves, in their own ability to do good works, albeit in Jesus' name, right? But it was still their works nonetheless, rather than simply trusting in Jesus and letting the good works flow out of that relationship with him. And anything short of simply trusting in Jesus Christ, trusting in Jesus alone by faith and living in dependence upon him, making him the focus, will not end well. (laughs) It will not end well when it comes to salvation and eternal life, it won't matter how many good works you've done in his name. I don't care if you fed the poor. I don't care if you went and sacrificed all of your savings to go to another country. If ye, I don't care if you were saying it in Jesus's name. If at the heart of those things, it was about you proving your spirituality, making yourself feel good about your spirituality through those things that you were doing, that self-dependent spirituality, I can tell you this, Jesus will look at you one day and say, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So let me ask you this morning, what are you guys trusting in? Are you trusting in yourself or are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus and letting your works flow out of that relationship or are you busy about works and the relationship is just the vessel? It's just the tool that you use to do those works. Who are you trusting in? And so it's clear in this dialogue, which Matthew records, that Jesus is speaking about a completely different issue and and to a completely different crowd of people than he is here in our passage in Luke. And yet it's actually two sides of the same coin, if you think about it. In Matthew, he's talking to a people who see their salvation being established in their works. While in Luke, he's talking about the lack of fruitful works by those who claim to follow him as their teacher. One has a wrong focus that impacts eternal life, while the other has to do with fruitlessness that reflects hypocrisy on the part of those who claim to be his followers. Both are important issues, but they are also very different issues that we must not confuse point out that distinction because there is a teaching that's prevalent in many circles of Christianity today called Lordship Theology.